1: Cats at Night. Now, here's John Catsimatidis,
0: And welcome to the John Catsimatidis Cats at Night show. I am Lydia Saranai. John Catsimatidis has a very important event he has to attend, but we got a great show for everyone tonight, so keep it right here. We're going to be talking with Curtis Sliwa. He'll be telling us about the crime that is plaguing New York City, and he has an idea that he thinks could... Could help stop some of these criminals right in their tracks. Dr. Peter Mikolos, of course, he's going to tell us how we can live longer. You really want to stay tuned for that one. And then we'll also be speaking with General Petraeus. You won't believe the latest developments when it comes to Ukraine. Bert Flickinger, when it comes to inflation. And we could be facing a strike on the railroads. Oh, God. But first on the line, we have John Solomon. And on the line with us right now is investigative reporter extraordinaire John Solomon of justthenews.com. That's justthenews.com. John Solomon, you always have the latest, greatest breaking news. What do you have for us?
2: Oh, Listen, uh, for months now, we've been hearing about President Biden negotiating with Iran, trying to resurrect that nuclear deal that Barack Obama had and was canceled by um, Donald Trump. Well... We keep hearing examples that the Iranians have not been good faith negotiators. And we have a big one today in New Jersey. Uh, just a few hours ago, federal prosecutors unveiled a sweeping indictment saying that three Iranian-backed nationals, so backed by the U.S. government, launched numerous cyber attacks against targets, including our multiple multiple power companies. So our utilities, trying to take out our utilities. So as Iran has been asking for our money, asking for a nuclear deal, they've been targeting through these people in the United States, in New Jersey specifically, our power plants trying to take our grid offline. A lot of people reacting to that, wondering, why are we negotiating with a company that keeps trying to attack us? That story is getting a lot of attention today. Another one, we got a bombshell last night from John Durham, the special prosecutor in the Russia collusion case. The man that we knew to be the source of the very well-disproven now, Steele dossier, a man who we knew the FBI suspected of being a Russian agent, a man we knew is accused and standing trial. And we just found out that man, Igor Danchenko, is a man the FBI has been paying as a confidential human source for three years. He was on the taxpayer's payroll despite all of that baggage. John Durham revealed that to us uh, last night. Lots of new questions about the FBI's judgment. Why would they pick a guy with that much baggage, that much problems, and use him as a source trying to prove that Donald Trump was involved in Russia collusion? Something we now know not to be true. That that
3: is unbelievable.
2: He was on the FBI
0: payroll,
3: and, and and he was doing all of that, too. And he's a
0: shady character on top of it. And he was their their informant to impeach the president of the United States.
2: And think about this. The, oh here's how he came on our radar. How Here's how we knew he was a bad guy. As the Obama administration was coming into power, Igor Danchenko, according to these court documents, was trying to pay people in the Obama administration to steal and give him classified information so he could give it to the Russians. Think about that. That's the sort of guy they were so desperate to get Donald Trump, they were willing to put on our payroll in hopes they could find some dirt on Donald Trump. That was a bombshell that came out last night.
0: Wow. Now, tell us about what's going on about Mike Lindell, the MyPillow guy. I mean, could it be that they literally got him at a Hardee's drive-thru and took his phone away because he questioned the election results in Colorado?
2: Yes, I have confirmed with FBI sources that, in fact, a, a group of FBI agents uh, who were tracking his phone did, in fact, stop him while he was in a drive-through line and seize his FBI a phone under using a grand jury subpoena. Um, yeah, listen, we've seen over the last two weeks uh, an accelerating probe into the January sixth. Uh, issues. And when I talk about it, that's expanded a lot now. It's involved in fundraising. It's involved in contacts with state officials. It's involved, but the FBI literally stopped the businessman whose lawyer they had on their phone number. They could have called the lawyer and arranged the surrender of the phone, but they didn't. They did another show of force, much like the many things that we've seen over the last three years. Uh, again, the more the FBI does these things, the more I'm beginning to hear from people, even some Democrats, some former FBI executives, that the FBI is begging to have another church commission hearing, to have another independent group like we had in the 70s come in and say, what are you guys doing? But that uh, that moment has been confirmed. Uh, uh, Mike Lindell's story has been confirmed to us by FBI sources. That is, that is some story.
0: I mean, at this point, we know the FBI, 99% of the guys that work at the FBI, they're great people, and maybe they're totally. just following orders from the DOJ. But at what point does – Does both sides of the political party say, listen, we cannot be weaponizing a a government agency like the FBI? This is crazy because all the people they seem to be raiding and subpoena, they have to be Republicans or they're Trump supporters.
2: Yeah, listen, the impression that it's become a political enforcement police instead of a law enforcement uh, police agency is growing every day. Even some Democrats I talk to now say, "Listen, this has just gone too far. They're just not using common sense." I've had one person say, "The FBI seems to be suffering from Trump derangement syndrome. They're so obsessed they don't realize what they look like everyday people." But I think the change—if there's a change in leadership in elections next year—we'll begin to see some hearings and some of the FBI conduct will kind of be put on a screen for people to look at. I think when the FBI looks at its conduct. It's going to have some regret about some of the ways it's acted over the last few years. Very hard to defend the Danchenko hiring. Very hard to say you stopped a guy in a fast food restaurant who you've known about for a year. I think people are beginning to question some of the judgment that the political leadership of the FBI are exercising. Next year may be the year, the looking glass moment where people realize that's not the FBI we want to be.
0: Any other thing you want to tell us about?
2: I have one other story that I think is going to become important. Uh, The January 6th committee hearings have been a one-sided show about Donald Trump and his supporters and getting out of control and doing bad things on on January 6th. Nobody disputes that. Everyone who did assaulted a police officer deserves to be prosecuted. But one of the things that has not gotten an ounce of attention from the committee is all of the intelligence that flowed into the January 6th, I'm sorry, into the Capitol Police Department for three weeks prior to, January 6th, there was all the warning signs, all the sirens were blaring red, and the Capitol Police Department did not put a plan together, even though it's worth, it has $600 million of funding a year, to stop attacks they knew were coming. Well, last night, I obtained an extraordinary uh, memo. It is a written three days after January 6th by the top intelligence analyst for the Capitol Police. His name is Eric Horne, and he wrote this extraordinary email saying, my fellow colleagues, we could have stopped January 6th. We had the intelligence. We knew it was going to happen. We didn't staff appropriately. We have to be honest with ourselves, and we have to learn from this mistake so that we never repeat it again, so that none of my colleagues ever again get assaulted in an attack that could have been prevented. sort of thing you're not going to hear from the January 6th committee, but it has gotten extraordinary play all across the country today. Uh, th- hundreds of thousands of people have been reading the story and sharing it. Uh, remember that name, Eric court, because if Republicans get into control next year of one of the chambers of Congress, he's going to become a witness. And one of the things I confirmed last night, there are about eight or 10 other uh, Capitol police officers that have come forward saying our leadership knew this was going to happen and they failed to prepare
4: for it. Uh,
3: John Solomon, uh, the, the thing that the Democrats are talking about, and I think uh, the governor in New York running against uh, Zeldin is saying that Five people were killed in January sixth. What five they yeah. they talking about? Anybody commit suicide? I mean what it's, happened
0: it 's a political ad yeah. running endlessly let 's hear what John yeah. says
2: just... it's not true. There is nobody that actually died from a direct injury in uh, that day. There are people that had heart attacks or people who had suicide. You can say they 're related or ancillary, but there were not five people who died in the attacks that day or uh, you know the most uh, famous one is an officer who suffered a stroke the next day and died, but no evidence that the stroke was caused by a head injury or injury that he suffered. Uh, one could argue the stress of a traumatic episode certainly contributed to it, but it is an overstatement from the evidence that is now in the in the uh, uh, body politic. That, they, that That's just not true. Five people were not killed that day. They didn't die that day. Uh, they died in the aftermath of that day, and maybe that horrible episode contributed, but it's an overstatement, and I think even the... PolitiFact and other fact-checking sites have called that out as not an accurate um, representation of what happened that terrible day. Well,
3: John Solomon, thank you for telling the truth, and our duty uh, is to tell the truth, and and, uh, God bless you, and uh, God bless America, and may America survive
2: the way me and you grew up. Yeah, thank you so much for the time. I love being on, on your show every day. Thank you.
0: John Solomon always has the best information, the latest information. And just to recap what John Solomon said, the FBI informant that was responsible, the source behind the Trump dossier that we he was impeached over and we found out that it was all a complete lie in the millions of millions of dollars and time spent and what the country went through was a guy who was being paid off by the FBI. And then on top of it, he was from Russia and a very, very shady character – it's just it's astounding to me. And just what John Solomon was saying, you have to wonder, are a lot of these government agencies now suffering from TDS, Trump's arrangement syndrome, because you can't comprehend why this would be happening. And then we heard yesterday about Mike Lindell, the MyPillow guy. He says he was simply, you know, buying some food at a drive through when out of nowhere, the FBI surrounds him and you're like, Hello, this is the FBI with the side of fries. You're going to now get a uh, subpoena and we're going to take your phone. I mean, this is the world that we're living in now. We know that the FBI, according to many sources, that they issued about 30 subpoenas and... All of them seem to be Trump supporters. Now, Mike Lindell is the one that actually broke this news yesterday. He said that the FBI told them to keep it quiet. And apparently this has to do with Mike Lindell questioning the 2020 presidential election results in Colorado. So take a listen to what Mike Lindell said.
2: The FBI came after me and took my phone. They surrounded me at a Hardee's. And I uh, took my phone. I run all my business, everything with. They could have just, what we've done is weaponize the FBI. It's disgusting.
0: It is absolutely disgusting. And it's horrific. Yesterday, we heard from the New York Post that the FDA, the FDA may have purposely slowed down Operation Warp Speed, that we would not have the vaccines for COVID until after the election. So my question to everyone out there is, Who is pressuring the FDA not to have the COVID vaccine and all the other medications that we need to survive that deadly disease to make Trump look bad? Can you imagine that rather than save people's lives... They they wanted to get rid of Trump. That's how desperate they were to get rid of Trump, that they were they'd rather see people die and not give them the vaccine that we so desperately needed. If it wasn't for Trump, if it wasn't for Operation Warp Speed, could you imagine the millions of people that would have died in the United States? It is it would have been catastrophic. And now here we go. Now it's Amtrak is canceling all long distance trains beginning on Thursday as rail systems brace for a potential strike and inflation remains to go out of control. So much going on. We're also hearing a report that an NYPD cop committed suicide because he can't take it anymore. So Curtis Lewa will be talking about that. But coming up, we're going to talk about the state of the economy, what we can do about it. Keep it right here. I'm Lydia Serrani, John Katz, Matidis, Cats at Night. Keep it right here.
1: It's Cats at Night on the Red Apple Podcast Network.
0: Welcome back to the John Katzmatidis, Cats at Night Show. I'm Lydia Sarani. John Katzmatidis is attending a special event, but you keep it right here because we also were able to pre-tape some interviews. We spoke a short, very short time ago. General David Petraeus, he's got some stunning, stunning developments out of Ukraine. Dr. Peter Mikolos again with more breaking news there on the medical front. And then we'll also be talking with Curtis Sliwa who has an idea on how to stop this the violent crime that is plaguing our city? But now on the line with us, we have Bert Flickinger. He is a well-known, uh, how would you, a top expert economist and an all-around great guy. Bert Flickinger, how are you, sir?
1: Good, uh, good, Lydia, and it's good you're calling attention to the rail strike at midnight tonight because that's going to add a lot more complexity to the economy as well as obviously cost.
0: Bert Flickinger what is going on i mean my god now we're hearing i mean the railroad is so important people don't realize that so tell us number 1 why why this could possibly happening and just how important our rail system is to our country
1: Lydia is, uh, you and John and team have reported well for all, all along is inflation leads to recession equals uh the stock market crashing and the bond market crashing as affects the unionized rail workers, their underfunded pension plans have, to, uh, in both stocks and bonds, have to be uh, uh, fully refunded uh, to get back into the green zone on those plans by their employers. So, even with an offer of a six percent wage increase, the underfunded pension plan is a bigger part. Uh, so, because of uh, the in- the inflation caused the recession caused the market crash is going to mean uh, this is going to be a bad strike, and if it is settled, it's going to lead uh, to more inflation. And to your point, uh, rail is so important from the daily commuters in the major markets across the country, as well as the, the long-haul product across uh, Canada, as well as uh, America and uh, Mexico in the, in the NAFTA agreement. So a lot of consequences. And while some people are are celebrating, uh, producer price inflation was still up over 8% uh, year over year, which means um, more inflation coming around the corner.
0: And the only reason, correct me if I'm wrong, we even saw inflation at Eight three eight point three percent. And if you recall, when Trump was president, it was like one point four percent was because gas prices actually went down a little bit. And John Katzmatidis has been saying that from the beginning. If you want to go to the source of inflation, keep the gas prices down. And the way to keep the gas prices down is to make us energy independent again. And so it, the solution, it's it's pretty simple, right? I mean, that they, they've actually admitted it. I heard it on CN, CNBC, CNN, you name it. Every liberal station is saying the reason we haven't seen inflation so bad is because gas prices went down. So wouldn't it make some sort of common sense? Okay, let's get rid of inflation by actually producing our own oil instead of begging Saudi Arabia and Venezuela and other adversaries for energy. I, I just, Bert Flickinger, I Help me make sense. Help this make sense why our government is insistent on making us uh, fail.
1: Lydia, you and John are completely correct. Uh, the U.S. Uh, plus its allies uh, in Canada and Mexico produce more oil than the Middle East and Russia combined. So it makes complete sense. And so now the problem is even with gasoline, a dollar seventy-seven a gallon higher than it was two years ago, People are being ordered back to work, but they can't afford to go back to work because mass transit's higher, tolls are higher, gas prices are higher. The price of buying and leasing cars has gone up significantly, as has uh, rent and, and, and or mortgage. And uh, Disney is being reported today as being prejudiced against poor people and working people because uh, they're price gouging poor and working people. Substandard quality, the Disney boats are sinking, the rides are breaking, and a poor working family unless they go to the Staten Island Ferry Hawks. Uh, you go to the Mets game last night with brilliant uh, uh, Jacob de Gram pitching, and the stadium's 40% empty because nobody can afford to take his or her kids to a ball game.
0: Right, and on top of it, I've, I've been seeing these viral videos when families – the father, with their sons, with their children. They're going to Yankee Stadium or coming home and they're being harassed on the train. And then if you go to the supermarket, that's where you're really seeing the prices that are affecting families all across the country. I mean, egg prices are up almost 40%. White flour, 23%. Milk is up almost 20%. Bread is 16%. I mean, food costs, you're seeing the lines at food banks across the country are longer than ever. And then I saw this one really sad report that... A huge number of people that were retired are now going back into the workforce because they simply can't make ends meet anymore. And the horrifying thing about all of this, Burt Flickinger, is it's all self-inflicted.
1: Lydia, completely self-inflicted, self-sabotage. You're absolutely right. And we can take corrective action with common sense, as you and John have said, uh, whether it's oil, energy, uh, whether, whether it's uh, food. Uh, And if we don't take corrective action within the next 50 to 100 days, retail, which is the number one employer, will continue to shut stores, lay workers off, lay vendors off, Uh, and uh, the workers who keep working in stores will be cut from full-time to part-time, which will create an economic chaos, the worst we've seen in 50 years and, and maybe the worst we've seen in 70 years.
0: And now in California, they want to ban uh, gas vehicles by 2035. In the meantime, there have been rolling blackouts, and 17 other states, it would affect about 100 million Americans, want to follow suit. I don't understand. Maybe you can explain it to me why we are consistently putting the cart before the horse. I understand they want to transition or have more options for energy. But shouldn't we have that plan in place? Shouldn't we have that national grid that can actually handle this in place before we try to just uh, eradicate an entire fossil fuel industry? And then on top of it, just a week later, California said, by the way, don't charge your cars anymore. I mean, could you imagine like this is crazy?
1: Lydia, your institutional insights are so important on the national grid. And talking to uh, uh, one of the executive officers of a major utility, said people are literally going to uh, freeze to death this winter because uh, there's there's uh, d- electric demand far exceeds supply with the decommissioning of coal and, and nuclear. And to your key point on the grid, Lydia, the grid hasn't been reinforced in nearly 50 years, so there are only 12 intersections Points in the continental United States in the power grid, very vulnerable to cyber crime. Uh, very vulnerable to uh, ju- just uh, animals uh, eating away at the at the wires in, in the drought conditions where where there's a lack of food, and no one uh, has has any experience uh, really in Washington, and, and it, co- it goes to both sides that. that um, Nobody's ever run anything and nobody's ever done anything. So uh, with um, my union uh, friends on the West Coast, their members can't afford to buy a secondhand car, much less a Tesla or an electric vehicle. And were they able to get a loan to buy an electric uh, vehicle? To your point, they couldn't afford to charge it anyway because uh, they can't afford uh, gas, groceries and rent. And and it's uh, Frank, Frankens, uh Dying like like nonsense, uh, but it's it's reality and it's not a Gene Wilder, Mel Brooks uh, uh, horror movie.
0: I know. And we keep repeating the same thing that the electric car batteries, they're made in China. And we know that the standard of production when Venezuela does dig for oil in Saudi Arabia, they don't compare. To how we do it here in the United States and the last last time I checked we're all, all on the same planet we're all we're all you know in the same environment and then meanwhile you got China they've been been ramping up their coal production it really is insane we've had two minutes left Bert Flickinger. how do you see this ending if this they keep pushing pushing and pushing this this green agenda?
1: Ludy you talk about sabotage in the People's Republic of mainland China. They're sabotaging their own agriculture production and their own fresh water uh, with the pollution from coal that's throwing uh, 150 million dead pigs and uh, their key key rivers and water sources uh, during the last four crop years. So so United States has to carry the world, but we can't uh, carry the world ac- across America uh, when people can't afford to feed their families and employers can't afford uh, to keep uh, – the places of employment open and, and keep the workers working. And this is going to be a collapse of, of epic proportions and uh, common sense uh, re- really needs to be communicated uh, because especially for students uh, out of school over, over the last uh, 12 to 20 years, many of whom have not voted, and uh, this is a key year to vote uh, for independence for Democrats, uh, for Republicans and uh, people of other parties, uh, because the, the elected officials, uh, to your point, are compromising and crippling the country commercially, uh, but not being held accountable, uh, as, as you referenced uh, with with uh, John earlier, and uh, so many so many of your excellent broadcasts uh, since ABC's hundredth uh, anniversary and before.
0: Well, thank you so much, Burt Flickinger. Thank you always for informing the public, and we'll talk to you very soon.
1: And let's hope Frank Morano's not announcing a rail strike on the other side of midnight.
0: (laughs) That's exactly right. We'll keep it right here. John Katsimatidis' Cats at Night continues. We're going to be speaking with General David Petraeus, Dr. Mikulos Curtis-Sliwa, and right now, Lou Dodd.
1: Cats at night on the Red Apple Podcast Network.
0: Welcome back to the John Katz Matides Cats at Night Show. I am Lydia Serrani. John Katz Matides had to attend in a very important event, but right before he left, we spoke to General David Petraeus, and he has a stunning announcement when it comes to what's going on in Ukraine.
5: Breaking news: WABC.
0: And now on the line for us, General David Petraeus, he's a retired general. He commanded the surge in Iraq and U.S. Central Command and NATO and U.S. forces in Afghanistan, followed by service as the director of the CIA. General Petraeus, I understand there are some stunning developments going on in the Ukraine. Tell us all about it.
4: Well, it really is extraordinary to see what Ukraine has achieved over the course of the last several days, where they have... Launched a counteroffensive uh, in the east, uh, outside the second largest city in Ukraine, Kharkiv, and they've pushed down along uh, the border there to the south, uh, liberating some 3,100 square miles. That's the latest number from President Zelensky, who was in the liberated area today to raise a flag over Izium, a critical city that was a logistics hub for Russia until again its liberation uh, a couple of days ago and i think what is significant about this uh is that it is the culmination of an enormous effort by ukraine uh that they're not only prevailing on the battlefield prior to that they prevailed in what might be termed uh, termed the force generation battle uh where they have proven to be much more effective and efficient in recruiting, training, equipping, organizing, and now employing uh, additional forces and capability vastly more effective at that than has Russia, which has struggled to replace its battlefield losses and casualties, uh, not only in terms of personnel, but also in terms of armored systems and other materiel. Russia, meanwhile, has Uh, directed that each of its republics in the Russian Federation uh, recruit a battalion. I mean, this is sort of what we did in the Revolutionary War, where every town has its own militia. That is not an organized way uh, to develop additional capabilities. And it's clear that Russia has struggled. Ukraine has done masterfully, uh, aided, of course, enabled by the enormous amount of arms, ammunition, uh, other material, vehicles, individual soldier kit that the U.S. and our NATO allies and Western partners have provided. So this is really significant. It's now, the question now is where can the Russians regroup? Uh, the Ukrainians have slowed a bit because they've got to have their logistics catch up uh, with those who are on the front lines. Uh, but Russia is in serious trouble, and the question is, can they reestablish a defensive line uh, in the east-southeast, even as they're also still under pressure from the offensive that you and I have discussed before, John, which is in the south, where they're methodically taking away territory uh, of the only Russians who are west of the Dnipro River that runs from north to south uh, through Ukraine. And it appears that they are making solid gains, again, slowly, methodically, carefully, because they don't want to do what the Russians do, which is destroy a city to take it. Um, So in in totality, this is a real uh, significant moment uh, on the battlefield. The Ukrainians now don't just have the strategic initiative that I described to you that they had seized a couple of weeks ago. Now they have strategic momentum. And the question is whether the Russians can respond effectively uh, and prevent further significant loss or not. And we'll see that in the days and, and weeks that lie ahead.
3: We we hear that the, the Russians are out of uh, certain munitions. Uh, they are buying from North Korea, and they're buying from... Uh, uh, where, where, where else were they buying from, Lydia? Iran, uh, I like Iran. Uh, I mean, did we realize that they were that bad? I mean... Uh, uh, the, the Russian Empire, has that bad of an army?
4: Well, certainly there were overestimations of certain capabilities. Not all of us thought, I, you may recall, I said, they will not even take Kiev, much less ever control it, before the invasion started. Um, uh, we knew they didn't have a non-commissioned officer corps the way we do. We knew they, we knew they had logistical shortcomings and so forth. Uh, but we certainly thought they had a lot of ammunition now, to be fair, in that assessment, they have shot enormous quantities of ammunition john they you know what they did was uh, they basically would run into opposition and they destroy everything to the front uh, until they basically depopulate an area and then they take over the rubble that 's what they have done to achieve the additional gains hard fought gains, very costly gains for them. In the southeast, uh, in the south, after the early gains that they achieved uh, at the beginning of the invasion in those areas. Uh, but they've run through so much. Uh, and keep in mind, the Ukrainians are also expending enormous quantities. I and mean, we've provided them roughly 750,000 rounds of heavy artillery. This is, again, for somebody who is in that line of work. Uh, during the invasion of iraq and so forth where we thought we shot a fair amount of artillery this is just so vastly greater in, in number uh, than anything we envisioned. so uh, again this has turned out to be very much an indirect fire war at certain points in time although now the ukrainians are schooling the russians on how to conduct maneuver warfare which is particularly impressive given that the ukrainians they've acknowledged they've never even trained on offensive operations much less uh, actually conducted them. Uh, they always trained on defensive, and they've done that superbly. But the offensive requires an integration of a whole number of different uh, capabilities and combined arms. Uh, and, again, they've done that very effectively, noting that they they saw opportunities where the Russians had thinned out the lines to augment the forces under pressure from the other Ukrainian offensive in the south, which they launched a few weeks prior To this recent one, and now they're taking advantage of what they saw with intelligence, perhaps assisted by information and intelligence from some of their allies and partners as well.
0: General Petraeus, clearly the United States has been a key, extremely strong ally to Ukraine. I mean that obviously is playing such a strong role, do you think, in their success?
4: No question about it. No. I mean we are and if you look at what we're providing compared to the aggregate of all others, uh, it is still just vastly greater. So, look, we have led this effort from before the invasion. I think quite effectively. And as you, I will remind you again, and I'm non-political, don't even register much less vote. And I w- no one was more critical of this administration on the Afghan decision and the conduct of that withdrawal than I was. This one, I think, you have to give them very substantial credit. Uh, also. Give credit to a bipartisan grouping uh, on Capitol Hill. Minority leader uh, Senator Mitch McConnell has been a huge champion of this, uh, again, as have the other leaders uh, from the other side of the aisle as well. So this is a case where the United States has come together, uh, again, both sides of the aisle, both parties, uh, and done an absolutely magnificent job uh, in aiding Ukraine in its hour of need. And also, of course, in leading the effort to impose financial, economic, and personal sanctions on Russia and the uh, export controls that are also crippling the Russian uh, military industrial complex because they cannot get microchips uh, based on those export controls as well.
5: Breaking news
4: WABC.
0: Thank you so much, General David Petraeus. And now that breaking news, a five to four Supreme Court rejects the Yeshiva University. So this is what happened. Yeshiva University was against the creation of an LGBTQ group, citing for religious reasons. Well, the Supreme Court says, you know what? They got to do it they have to do it majority says Yeshiva can though try again on its religious rights claim after case has gone through the New York court the the New York courts Alito Thomas Gorsuch and Barrett Barrett excuse me dissent so the Yeshiva University based on the Supreme Court must allow. An LGBTQ group on the line with us right now is Judge Weinberg. Judge Weinberg, we talked about this story at length yesterday with Professor Dershowitz. What goes through your mind to hear that the Supreme Court went against the Yeshiva University? Well, what,
6: in a technical sense, what the, the Supreme Court said is that they will not stay this, the lower court's decision, the state court's decision down, down in the state New York courts. And they, because they had remedies to go through an appellate process. In the lower courts, so it's not like it was an absolute decision. Ultimately, that uh, they would impose this club on on Yeshiva University. They're just saying as long as there's a process to go through the state courts, they have to exhaust that first. So it's a technical legal decision, but it was five, but it was five to four. And it would the practical effect. The practical effect is is very simple. Uh, right now, they have to accept the club.
0: Right. So the Yeshiva University, they're a private university, correct? That's correct. So a private university is now being forced by the Supreme Court, the highest law in the land, to permit a club that goes against their religious beliefs and LGBTQ. That's why this this decision could have some far reaching uh, impacts uh, all across the country for many different religions and many other different private institutions. What do you think?
6: I think that's exactly right. I don't. But ultimately, let's let's be clear. It's not an ultimate decision on the merits before the Supreme Court. All it's saying is that the lower court decision that said they had to accept this group as an organized group recognized by the university, that stays in place. They refuse to to block it and to to ban that. So the lower court decision stays in place. The Supreme Court didn't say, as a matter of law, that they absolutely, positively, ultimately have to do that. That'll, we'll find that out later on as the case moves through the, the state process as well as uh, ultimately going to the Supreme Court. What's, but right now it's okay. in play.
0: Yeah, okay, what's to stop then – say, a transgender student saying, hey, I, I want to be in a sorority or, you know, something like that. And then you or you have like Bob Jones University, that very Christian college down south that has their own religious beliefs. Like what's to stop or even a Catholic university from saying we don't want this or we don't want that. For, if this happens at Yeshiva University, couldn't that impact other type of private institutions that and they'll be. Yes, that's,
6: yeah. that's an excellent point. Yeah, it has. It, it could ultimately, if this stays in place, which is that a private university has to accept this kind of group, that will be precedent for other groups, inclu- including Catholic groups and any other any other religious groups. Wow. So yes, it's a it's a, it's a problem, and it could be a far-reaching precedent. But again, it becomes very very important to see what the uh, the courts and. Uh, in the state of New York, now it's going back to the state courts. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm not necessarily—see, remember this. They were relying—New York was relying on a on New York law, a human rights law. The question that would become, is there another body of law in another state that has a similar law? And the likelihood is that many states across the country and many cities across the country would have the same kind of law. So every case will be specific based on whether that's that law is attainable. This was not— based on constitutional right this was based on the uh the human rights law of new york
0: well thank you so much i it feels like a dangerous precedent that has been set but we'll keep on this story thank you so much judge weinberg keep it right here cats at night continues we'll be speaking with dr peter Mikolos and curtis Slewa. keep it right here cats at night
1: cats at night on the red apple
3: podcast network
0: with us today is dr
3: peter michelos and he's got some new revelations of what the heck is going on and keeping us alive. Uh, Dr. Peter, how are you?
7: Having had some experience uh, working in the past in Rikers Island, uh, the young doctor paying back my medical school loans. And uh, one of the things that I noticed after reading the bail reform law that if you really just put one sentence in the bail reform law, you could fix a lot of the crime in uh, New York. And what you would do is the one sentence would basically say, that judges have the discretion to evaluate the degree of dangerousness of a particular offender who committed that crime. And once judges have the discretion to evaluate someone's dangerousness, for example, if they have previous arrests or previous assaults or violent crimes, what comes into play is the uncompassionate side of the bail reform because some of these people do need help. And on Rikers Island instead in the old days, they would get evaluated and, uh, well, their health issues would be dealt with. Many people we used to discover they had sex with gonorrhea, TB, chlamydia, these other herpes, diseases, and they actually got treated. But it's not only compassionate for the inmate, but it's also compassionate for the public because when you release these people without having their medical conditions treated, they're also spreading diseases.
3: Uh, years ago, they threw all the, uh, should I say, mentally ill out of the hospitals and put them into the streets in New York. And uh, I think we had something like 28,000 at one time uh, that uh, Mayor Giuliani had said to me. And now there's only 3,000.
7: The uncompassionate side of bail reform, uh, what we can do on the island is you can have the court there three days a week instead of carting people off the island and the complaining of short staff correction officers. You just walk them over and have the court three days a week. You can also have, like they have out in Suffolk County, They have uh, training programs, for example, for landscaping or a handyman course so people aren't sitting there planning their next uh, crime, but they're focused on learning a skill set so they can be employable when they get out. The other thing is instead of sending them for appointments to different clinics around different hospitals, they should be having the psychology and psychiatry clinics right on Rikers Island, but having enough therapists to see these people and get them to help in the drug rehab programs because many of these people are addicted to drugs and alcohol and they commit crimes to get money to get more drugs and you try to break the cycle so that's the compassionate side of uh bail reform and that's what we need to focus on that will protect the public and protect people from um you know being attacked and assaulted when people get their medication and they get treated they're less likely to commit crimes and uh there's also things like simple diseases like even you know diabetes and thyroid disease that i used to have an inmate tell me i'm so glad i got arrested because i'm finally getting my blood sugar under control or i've been in severe pain and agitated because my tooth hurts you know but treat these people with compassion and uh give them the psychiatric care that they need and also give the judges the discretion to uh, make a decision on the degree of dangerousness to be able to hold people and not just send them back on the street without even a shower, and then they pick up hammers and knives, and we're seeing all these random slashing and stabbings and people being pushed downstairs, and this has to stop. Otherwise, our economy will suffer because the people who are signing the front of the checks are fleeing Manhattan by the droves, and we see it with record releases how people are leaving the state. Yes, people are still in the city, but we could get more. We can get more tourists, and we need that money to help pay our deficits in the state, and to pay our pension plans and pension obligations, which are quite large in New York State.
3: What we were talking about before with the uh, uh, mentally ill, at one time they were telling me they had 28,000 mentally ill people in hospitals, and now they're down to 3,000, and the rest of them are in the subways and the streets of New York. Uh, Don't those people need treatment?
7: Yeah, not only they need treatment, but what people don't realize is they thought that outpatient was going to work, but the problem is that the street medicines feel better than the oral medicines that they're given, and then you have non-compliance, and nobody shows up to these outpatient appointments, or they don't show up to the window. In the old days, in a facility, you stood on a line in the window with a guard there, you opened your mouth, you took your medicine, you got treatment, you got therapy, you got the help you needed, so you could be transitioned back into society, but now... This isn't compassionate. So the way we have to tell the legislatures is you're not being compassionate to these people, and you're also not being compassionate to the people of the general public. And you're also affecting health and safety because you're not treating all the potential communicable diseases that these people have that would normally be treated if they were held for a while and be properly evaluated. So they're going back on the street. They're spreading various diseases that they may or may not have the syphilis, the gonorrhea, the HIV, and I was there during all that, and we caught so many cases of syphilis and got them treated and chlamydia, and they would otherwise spread it to the rest of the public. So I think that the state legislature needs to look at and change that one sentence in the law, give judges back the discretion to evaluate the degree of dangerousness of an inmate and be able to evaluate their past history of criminal activity, and that will help the whole system tremendously, and it will save lives because that's what we want to do get the message out, save lives, and hopefully someone in the state legislature has some common sense and will add that one sentence to the law, which will change things overnight.
3: So we've got to take care of the mentally ill, and we got to make sure that the dangerous individuals are not on the streets, and uh, that's what we yeah, have to do. Give,
7: give, absolutely. Give the power back to the judges. Give them the discretion. When you took away discretion from the judges, as Judge Weinberg has told us in the past, That was the beginning of the end when I saw that. That's why we have to give the judges the power back and they can, you know, get them the help they need. Before you can mandate somebody, you're going to go to a treatment program. We're going to get you the mental health you need. We're going to get you the drug rehab program that you need. And we're going to help you transition and give you some vocational training as well to get you back in society, to help you get a job. Just like a great job. Sheriff Errol Toulon does in Suffolk County. They have a whole landscaping training program, and people learn a skill set. And when they get out, they actually can go get a job, and they say, I know how to do certain skills. And that would be a a big help to these people because we want to help people and be compassionate to them.
3: Well, uh, Dr. Peter Michalos, thank you for for telling the truth to the uh uh, new yorkers and the american people and uh, god bless you and uh, god bless america and I hope we can let's catch up again Real soon.
5: breaking news wabc
0: and with that and with that breaking news we have curtis sliwa curtis another day another random attack tell us the latest
5: well as our cops are assigned to protect the dictators despots and tyrants who have flooded to the general assembly of the united nations There's so few cops out there that another incident occurred blocks away from our studio here in the Upper East Side. 71-year-old cancer survivor woman was knocked out cold by an emotionally disturbed man. He then uh, moves down the street. He picks up a bottle. He throws it at a baby carriage. A one-year-old gets hit right in the head. The father takes it upon himself to capture the individual, slams him to the ground. Some others surround uh, him, hold him until the police arrive. But it's another example where people have to take the law into their own hands. They can't wait any longer. It's not you can't just call nine one one and wait because they're all protecting dictators, despots, and tyrants till the twenty ninth at the United Nations General Assembly.
0: I know there was another random attack in Chelsea in the middle of the day. A guy was walking around with a brick. I mean, we keep seeing about these attacks over and over again. I mean, Curtis, like. How bad is it getting out there? You're out on the streets every single night. What can we do?
5: Well, as the emotionally disturbed persons that the doctor was referring to continue to roam around the streets and the parks and live in the subways, you're going to continue to have this. We're not hospitalizing them as we should. It's the state's responsibility. Uh, Governor Hochul, who has overseen a crime wave of unprecedented proportion— refuses to forcibly put these people in need of mental health care. Kirby Psychiatric, right on Ward Island, state facility. Only 30% of the beds are occupied. Creamore, North Queens, only 30% of the beds are occupied. These are state facilities. There's plenty of room to give them health care, and it's not being done.
0: And it's 65 in Central Park West. A 27-year-old walking down the street middle of the day got punched in the face. His face got smashed. I mean, who has to die? Who has to be seriously injured for Hochul to understand that judges need to have discretion and we need to put these mentally ill people in facilities so they can get the help they need and so we can be safe.
5: And we need more cops, and we need more correctional officers. There's been no money spent to hire any more cops. In fact, the mayor just announced a round of cuts. And guess which is the first agency to be cut? The NYPD. Well, that's a real morale booster to the men and women out there who are tasked with uh, protecting us.
0: And then on top of it, another NYPD cop committed suicide. I mean, because of the way they're being treated. Didn't didn't that Zeldin ad recently say that the January 6th riot led to the death of five cops? Well, it looks like to me they have the Albany legislators have blood on their hands for all of these NYPD cops that are committing suicide because of how they're being treated. What do you think, Curtis? Well, I'm
5: heading out there now. In fact, I'm heading to Staten Island for a fundraiser for Republican candidate Sam Pirazzola to replace a Democrat. And that's where you saw a white thug try to rob two other white guys in Eltingville with a gun. They turned the tables on him, slammed him to the ground. He's dead. They're alive. That's what we have to do to save our city.
0: Have you had enough, New Yorkers? Have you had enough? The definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different outcome. Thank you so much. On behalf of John Katzmatidis, God bless New York and God bless America.